Is depression funny? I think that what comes from depression is some of the funniest stuff in the world. You know, my friends that are comedians use their depression as grist for a mill that churns out the most brilliant comedy um, that keeps the world laughing and smiling. And, and so eventually depression is funny. But when you're enveloped in a cloud of it, there's nothing funny about it. I'm wondering if uh, we could lead off with uh, a live version or a comparatively live version of Pagliacci, the, the theme song to our program, the much beloved theme song to our program. Okay, one, <laughs> two. Guy goes in to see his doc, says there's something wrong with me. I got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? Doctor has a thing, says he might know just the thing. There's a performer here in town, and he's the world's greatest clown. Laughter, as we all know, is the best medicine. The guy says, Doc. That's the problem What if I was to tell you I'm Pagliacci This great big smile is just for show What if I was to tell you This is just grease paint Would you say I'm a hopeless case Say it ain't so would you say I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know. It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. We talk to funny, creative people who have dealt with depression. That way we can have a pleasant time, learn some things, and not feel so alone. My guest on this episode is someone you've heard on every episode we've done. You've heard him singing, but he talks, too. My name is Rhett Miller. I sing in a band called Old 97s, as well as make solo music and write things. And I am right now in a studio at the Harvard Public Affairs and Communications Building in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I talked to Rhett on the day of a show he was doing in Boston, which is not too far a drive from his house in New York's Hudson Valley, a ways north of the city, where he lives with his wife and two kids. Rhett is a skilled songwriter, he's funny, and he's dealt with depression for a long time. So he was the first and only person we approached to do our theme song. He said, sure, but... I was a little stressed out about how to convert um, this idea you have about talking about mental health um, with, you know, creative type people um, and how to make a song out of that. Because in a way, every song I've ever written has been some version of talking about mental health and the idea of creation as um, a defense against the encroaching darkness or something. Finally, a friend mentioned an old opera joke. The story of Pagliacci is he's a, a clown and he's a sad clown and he goes to the doctor. Um, well, actually, you're not supposed to say that when you tell the story. And this is why I'm not a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> Guy goes in to see a doc. Literally. So anyway, so I tell the story in the song and it was all because he'd pointed it out to me. And it, but it made me think of back when I lived in Los Angeles and I got to be around the, the comics all the time. Um, so funny. There's no group of people that is more fun to hang out with, but it comes with 
a real dark side and a real potential for, um, you know, squabbles between them and um, bad blood. And there's just an unexpected amount of sort of unhappiness attendant to the funny. And so um, I'd always kind of bought into this idea that the people that make us laugh the hardest are the people that are frequently the saddest. And so I was um, glad you were making this show, but uh, also I it, that was sort of my way in to write this song, Pagliacci. Rhett Miller has released seven solo albums dating back to his late teens. His band, Old 97s, have put out 11 full-length records over the last 23 years. Same lineup, 23 years. They're a favorite of critics, they do well on the charts, they put on ripping live shows. Rhett is a friend of mine, but I kind of can't stand him. And I'll tell you why. He's funny, he's a great singer and a great songwriter, he's successful and famous, and he's very good-looking. It isn't fair for one person to be all those things, save some for the rest of us. I must note, however, that even if you have all that going for you, depression doesn't care. Rhett Miller's story, and that of his mental health issues, begins near Dallas. I grew up in a pretty safe-feeling middle-class house. Um, And my family, uh, for a while, was pretty functional. I mean, eventually it broke as you know, half or more than half of families do. Um, You know, I could point to things in my childhood that were, you know, painful that sort of came from the place of my family. I could point to um, the environment in which I was raised, which I grew up in a family that uh, had had a lot of money in the generations before I came along. My grandfather lost um, all of it, but there were still some trappings, including the, the, the zip code, you know. So I grew up on the the outskirts of this wealthy part of town. And so my childhood was was sort of um, defined by being the, the poorest kid in a rich part of town, which is such a weird thing to even think of as a problem. But, you know, but there it was. And that was that was sort of my problem. And um, I've I've taken from that a real distrust of of wealth. Issues with people who have money led to issues with the things people buy with money. When I started really having suicidal ideations, when I started really identifying as um, self-identifying as someone who could and would someday uh, commit suicide, I, I, um, I, I got really hung up on the idea of a uh, collection of material possessions, you know, large and small. Um, and the large ones rankled me first, like the idea of people, uh, what car you drove and, and um, you know, these larger signifiers of wealth um, being somehow equated with worth. And, and then it got down to something that I, that I still think about a lot, which is the idea of just little things that we accumulate, even, you know, regardless of your social stratus, like, you know, you're always going around and collecting and I do it. I mean, I still do it. And I try to make it have, I try to make these things have meaning. You know, I collect these notebooks, but people collect, you know, my grandmother, maternal grandmother collected owls, you know, and her, her whole fucking house was owls everywhere <laughs> you'd look. And, um, you know, for me, when I was 14 years old, it really came to a head, uh, as I think it does with so many kids with just all the hormones and all the social pressure I uh, I remember a moment walking down, and I've talked about this a, a few times since I've 
become willing to talk about, you know, my own, my suicide attempt and my own struggles with, um, with that impulse. Um, there was a moment walking down this flight of stairs at my parents' house, um, um, and I remember looking up and there was this brass cat. It was just a tiny statue of a brass cat, and, and, and it had a little bit of verdigris in the creases, and it just, it had been collected and placed on this window ledge and forgotten. And to me, in, in that moment, it sort of crystallized all of it, like the, the meaninglessness um, of this thing that we do, this repetition, this, um, this sort of zombie-like stumbling through life towards death. And because the cat had been acquired and placed there, that yeah, like it represented a materialism. It represented the pointlessness of it. Like, okay, here's just this this brass image of a cat, and and somebody paid money for it, and then somebody <laughs> kept it and moved it from house to house, and then they put it on a shelf, and and then it its place on the shelf was such that. After a certain point, no one ever noticed it again, and it was just one more piece of crap just filling up this house in order to try and bestow meaning upon, um, you know, the things happening in this house. Does that make any sense? It does. It does. It's it's another object. It has no utility. It's not making anybody better. It's not providing any meaning. It's just as we as we've been placed on this rock spinning through space. It's just a dumb brass cat that that. Uh, it sort of makes you think that a lot of things are dumb brass cats. Yeah. And and I could see my grandma, my maternal grandmother, um, you know, who had been born into great wealth and wound up living in just a, a squalid little apartment. Um, but probably I would argue it, those last few years when all she did was play bridge with her, you know, neighbors – were probably better than the decades that she spent in high society in Dallas, you know. Um, But I could see her in this, you know, this tiny little apartment just overflowing with um, owls. And and it just all of it, it just it seemed like, you know, we try to create meaning where there is none. I guess it was my youthful existentialism and just getting really hung up on – what is the point and, you know, what is the point that we're trying to uh, create in, in lieu of there actually being any point? There weren't a lot of adolescent boys in Dallas in the early 80s reading Jean-Paul Sartre, but Rhett Miller was. Sensitive kid, thoughtful kid, depressed kid. It wasn't just Sartre he was reading, though. I was reading Freud. I think that I had a, my mom worked for a psychiatrist then, starting about when I was 12, and I would spend a lot of times, you know, as as a lot of latchkey kids did, sometimes I went home to an empty house and sometimes I went to the office. Um, if it was my dad's office, it was all law and there, nothing more boring to me. And if it was my mom's, uh, I would – there was a closet, I remember, behind the desk where she sat. And I would – I'd be in the closet for long enough, like, again, like the brass cat. I was there long enough where nobody remembered that there was like an 11-year-old kid in the closet and the shit that I heard was – so juicy and so, you know, and usually it was other people's stuff. And um, and you just kind of get a glimpse, you know, I'm sure there, there's in, insanely unethical stuff happening uh, with an 11-year-old being able to listen <laughs> yeah. to what was happening in the psychiatrist's office. But um, there was a moment I remember when Dr. Hubbard, uh, who himself was a very interesting personality, um, Dr. Hubbard said something to my mom 
And he may have even, now that I think about it, he may have known that I was in the closet and could hear him because he was probably trying to impart some wisdom to 11-year-old me. He said, you know, until Rhett can walk up to me and say, fuck you, Dr. Hubbard, he's never going to be able to function in this world. And it still stuck with me because i that's my thing is I, I really want to make other people happy to the detriment of my own happiness. It's like he was living in a rodeo town, but his own life was like an art house screening of my dinner with Andre, maybe with a little more shouting. Later on, he would get a scholarship to Sarah Lawrence College, then drop out after one semester to make music. Still, he's well-read. You do start one of your more popular songs with Richard Wagner in the, the very <laughs> first two words of the song. To understand a songwriter, it helps to hear their songs. This one, called Our Love, is archetypal Rhett Miller. It's a love song, but full of literary references and a big scoop of dread. Rhett wrote it after reading about Wagner and Kafka's letters to their lovers. But it was all filtered through this idea that I was right then in the middle of falling in love myself, um, which was weird because the girl with whom I was falling in love was technically still married oh. and had a boyfriend as well. So it was. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You're like a Russian novel unto yourself. Uh, maybe. Richard Wagner's letters to his lover Matilda were a mess. He should have quit before he had written the address. Yeah, they made love on the mezzanine. Her husband was his friend. Vienna in a fugue, stay working on a thing that when he finished it took almost seven hours to sing. Well, he still found time to write to her his heart exploding words. Our love surpassed, our love so fast, our love's all wrong, our love goes on and on. Our love became our love by name When I wrote it to you in a song Our love goes on and on Our love, our love Kafka in his letters to his lover Milena was alive Was waiting for a love that never would arrive Yeah, their rendezvous was singular Her husband was his friend She's a living fire, she's a reason to live Killing me, burning only for him Well, I'll spend my whole life loving her My heart exploding words Our love surpassed Our love so fast our love's all wrong Our love goes on and on Our love became Our love by name When I wrote it to you in a song Our love goes on and on Our love, our love Our love, our love Our love, our love Our love, our love Rhett's music is full of joy. Remember that. It comes up later. But first, let's back up a ways. When I was in fourth grade, I was still in the public schools um, that, that weren't a good fit for me because <clears throat> Dallas, Texas, 1970s, uh, public schools were – there wasn't a big campaign against bullying. Yeah. I'll put it that way. And I remember I would try and get ahead of the kids – um, I would make up nicknames 
um, professor. Oh yeah, don't call me professor encyclopedia. And then they'd get, yeah, you're professor encyclopedia. <laughs> and I, you just call me smart, you know. Um, I sang the solo in the fourth grade school pageant, uh, and I picked up the nickname opera singer um, after that. You know, whatever. And so these. These sat, now they sound kind of like sweet nicknames, but they weren't because they were also accompanied by, you know, beatings and, and that kind of stuff. So I was having a tough time and, you know, I really wanted to be. And in retrospect, I can't even imagine why, but I really wanted to be popular and I really wanted these popular kids to like me. And um, and and that just that desperation, I think, fueled their, um, you know, their their ire or their disdain. Rhett hated where he went to school. Add unrecognized and undiagnosed depression to that, and it got so bad that it became physical. So in fourth grade, I started getting sick in, in this way that um, was uncategorizable. Uh, every time I would try and walk, I would get vertigo, and I'd fall down, and I started... Um, vomiting a lot, and um, and I remember it, it the the first night that that I remember thinking like oh my god I have this is like this is some kind of a a real situation beyond just food poisoning or something I remember it was the night that um, the news broke in the middle of the night that John Belushi had died. And one of my family, there was a time when my family was a really functioning, I mean, as far as I could tell, because I was a little kid at this point, a really, um, you know, kind of a sweet unit. My family would watch Saturday Night Live every Saturday night. We'd fold out the couch bed in the living room. We'd get donuts from the donut shop. And we'd all stay up till midnight watching SNL, which was in the earliest days. And Belushi was, you know, because I was a little kid, my favorite, because he was such a big goofball. And... um so I remember that moment uh, laying in bed with this mysterious illness and hearing that Belushi had died and thinking that it was somehow all connected. And um, I got up to go try and tell my parents and and um, and I fell and I hit my head against the wall and blacked out. Rhett was sent to the hospital where he would spend the next two months as doctors tried to figure out what was going on, why this kid seemed to be getting worse and worse. There was a weird thing that happened where the first week or two, you know, my mom or my dad would sleep in the room. But after a certain point, again, it's like the fucking cat on the window ledge. After a certain point, it's like, well, Rhett's in the hospital. And um, and so I was just there alone. And I was a fourth grader. And um, and I would go down in a wheelchair. They, they'd, they would wheel me down to the lobby every day and I would buy another book. And the majority of the books that they would sell in the hospital lobby were Stephen King, Clive Cussler, Flowers in the Attic. They're these these really terrifying, <laughs> terrifying books. Yeah. And um and I read all of them alone in a dark hospital um as a kid. And there was a lot of things about that time that um were really bad, but I think the worst thing about it was this weird knowledge that there was a component of what I was going through that w- I knew and and this may or may not be true physically physically or physiologically. I knew that there was a psychosomatic element to what I was doing, that I was unhappy. I hated my school. I could sense that my family was starting to splinter. Um, and I didn't, I wanted out, you know, I wanted out of, of all of it. And, and this was a very convenient, albeit you know, horrible way to, uh, to remove myself from the situation. 
He wasn't faking the illness, but Rhett thinks he may have been unconsciously causing it, or at least contributing to it. Now, you might have noticed that Rhett talks a lot in imagery, the brass cat, the donuts in bed, the fourth grader reading horror novels alone in a hospital room. His songs are like that too, actually. And it was imagery that kind of turned things around. Imagery about footwear. It culminated in a trip to Syracuse to see the specialists um, in inner ear, whatever, imbalances. And I remember they wheeled me into the room and there was a U-shaped table with all these doctors. And, and um, they asked me to, to crawl for them and because I couldn't walk. And so I crawled around and I remember all these doctors' shoes you know, lined up, the nicest, shiniest shoes. And I'm crawling on the floor. And I think something in me clicked like, I got to get this together. <laughs> this is not this is not the way out. And so I I you know, I was able to I, you know, a few weeks later it dissipated. The 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 spells stopped. I I did I was on crutches for a long time after that. And then he could walk again. He maybe even defeated his body with his mind. After that he made some changes. His family scraped the money together to send him to a private school, and it went well for a while. But adolescence kicked in and dark thoughts. We pick up at age 14. And I was um, getting more and more, you know, just scared uh, again of, it's, it's that feeling of being scared of, of every day, you know. And in fourth grade, my answer for it had been to um, buy, a, you know, two, two packages of Oreos on a Friday after school uh, check out eight books from the library, go home and eat all the Oreos and read all the books in my bed alone. and um, But that wasn't going to work as I became a teenager. And the stakes just get higher when you get when you hit adolescence. And, and I remember I'd, I'd had a fight with my girlfriend. I'd had a fight with my mom. My dad was um, starting to disappear more and more from the family uh, physically and just from the family dynamic. And... and um, and so it all sort of culminated in this uh, this split-second decision that I was done. I was tired of it. I'd seen, I'd seen the end game. And the end game was just collecting these tchotchkes and placing them around your house and then eventually dying uh, while they looked down upon you. And I decided I would skip straight to the end. You couldn't see a good future. I could see what I thought was a future, but... But it was it, it offered no hope. It offered more of the same. Um, you know, the family that I felt like was so strong had revealed its, you know, fundamental flaws. Um, you know, I just it's that thing I feel like um, I used to think it was specific to artists or creative types where you look around and uh, every once in a while you feel like you see into the soul of a stranger and you just feel their the bottomless depth of pain. I went down to the um, the guest bathroom and I found all of the po- things marked poison and I poured them in a big gulp cup and I drank uh, two big gulps worth of poison, most of which was oil-based, like oil lamp fluid, a lot of that, which wound up saving my life because it sort of coated my stomach for the pills that I then took a bunch of pills after. Well, we are talking to him, so spoiler alert, he's going to be okay. But how does he get from that point to being a successful rock and roll singer? It involves a kid's sister. More in a moment. 
The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness, not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression. It's a way of maybe demystifying depression a little bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious disease. The good news is that people can and do get better. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It can be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, what to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org. You can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. There's a pinprickle light on a black sheet of night Its name is your name So whiskey kiss and a moment of bliss That goes on and on and on and on Trapped in a life that I can't understand And nothing's worked out like I'd planned Dreaming of things that never appear And I feel so lucky to be right here Back with Rhett Miller, when last we left him, he was 14 years old, getting destroyed by undiagnosed and untreated depression, and he had just swallowed a bunch of poison. When my legs started to go numb, I realized that, all of a sudden I realized that when I died, my little sister was going to either find me or find out from someone and that tiny split second of realization, it was as if a door flew open and I knew that the thing that I had been um, denying when pondering meaning in life was that, was, was the thing that Sartre called hell, was other people. And the thing that would give life meaning was the, you know, the the intangible connection that I had to my little sister at that moment. And then and then as I've gone on to live what I feel like is a, a life that's offered a lot of happiness and a lot of, you know, really deep moments of joy, um, those moments come from, and consequently my understanding of m- meaning in life comes from um, this connection to other people. And so when I realized the effect that... Um, that my dying was going to have on my little sister, in that moment I knew that I didn't want to die and that I couldn't die. And I started running and I ran out the back door and I ran to the railroad track two blocks away and I ran a mile down the railroad track and I hit a a shopping, uh, a street with a little shopping mall and I ran into the shopping mall and I made it to the um, parking lot of the 7-Eleven where I collapsed and blacked out and... um, this, a girl that went to Arts Magnet, um, uh, who I wind up wound up becoming friends with after the fact, uh, was exiting a restaurant, a Mexican restaurant across the street, and she saw me collapse, and she ran over and she rolled me over, and she found in my pocket I had um, 
amongst other things, I had my girlfriend's phone number written down on a scrap of paper, and she called my girlfriend at the time, whose dad was a doctor, and they picked me up, and they took me to the emergency room. And um, they couldn't pump my stomach for whatever reason because of the drugs, so they had to induce vomiting, and I guess I vomited for hours, and then the next morning woke up. So so what? do you remember running down the track? What's the last thing you remember? I remember running down the track. I remember emerging onto Knox Henderson into the parking lot of the 7-Eleven. Um, and I've always felt like I had a memory of looking up and seeing her, her face, the, um, the girl from, from Arts Magnet. And, and, um, but I, I don't know if, you know, it's, that memory is so romantic, I don't trust it. Rhett's memory is a lot clearer when it comes to what he did after he woke up in the hospital. And it was hard for him to talk about. You know, I woke up the next morning and I was alive. And um, and during the moment that I woke up, I was singing. I remember very clearly coming to and I was singing a song. What song were you singing? I I know that I know I'm supposed to be completely honest. but And I remember the song that I'm singing, but it's so embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> it's... um. Look, I was I was a, I was what the, my kids now call an emo, but back then they called it a goth. Um, and so there was a lot of a lot of the music that went on. There were bands that there were bands that other kids like me liked that I didn't like, actively didn't like. Uh, one of which was Depeche Mode. Uh huh. I was never a fan, and I get now that they are actually of all the of all that music they had a lot going for them. But I just it just wasn't. I didn't like the synthesizers, and it seemed. But, um, oh my God, I can't believe I'm telling you this. Um, when I came to, after my suicide attempt and was singing a song and it was so on the nose that if I wrote it in a script, you'd, you'd write it out in one of your notes. But, um, I was singing Blasphemous Rumors by Depeche Mode. And it was that line, um, I don't want to start any blasphemous rumors, but I think that God's got a sick sense of humor, and when I die, I expect to find him laughing. But at the same time, it was that moment of being alive, feeling surprised at being alive, and singing a song, um, albeit maybe a song that I wouldn't have been proud in the ensuing years to admit. Having it's a perfectly fine song, Red. You really, you really need to move yeah. past this Depeche Mode uh, uh, reticence. A correction on the statement I just made. I was wrong. That's a terrible song. I remembered it being a much better song. It's a bad, bad song. You talk about this thought of your sister, of your younger sister. Uh, when did you finally tell her about that? I don't know how old, how old she was at the time, if you could have told her right then or what. what did, how did that play? It, it was a uh, – when I attempted suicide, it was a, an event with seismic repercussions within the family. It was uh, – it was – unavoidable that she would find out pretty quickly. She's five years younger than me, so she was a nine-year-old kid at the time, and she was, you know, she still is. She's whip smart, so it was not something that the family was going to 
really withhold from her. Um, you know, I I wound up, you know, being um, whatever. I wound up in I wound up in a lot a lot of therapy. Um, my little sister knew about it. My brother knew about it. Um, everybody at school knew about it. It was it was a defining moment for my young life. And and it's funny how people after something like that. Uh, boy, you talk about the stigma. Um, I was at a point where I embraced it, but I definitely became something of a pariah um, within the community. You know, parents did not want their kid bringing me home after school to play, you know. Uh, but but I, I was on the brink of my own adulthood and my own musical career, and it, in a way, that sort of ostracization uh, fueled me. It was a it was a deep knowledge that I you know that I'd been through something that set me apart, and I was and I needed to, you know, use my second chance at life, and my you know what I felt like was an insight into, um, I don't know this the the human condition to to make art, and I had to start doing it right now. Were you playing music by that point? I was. Um, I had started writing songs at thirteen. Um, beginning with a, a really terrible song about uh, Charles Manson. R.I.P. <laughs> wow, it was it was really bad, John. <laughs> Cars just starting in third gear, then, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> what was was you killed the actress and the hairdresser too, Charlie? What they ever do to you, uh, Charles Willis Manson? Oh boy, look what you've done. It was it was really bad. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, it's like we had Amy Mann on the show, and she talked about the song she wrote when she was like 15. About, about hobos. About hobos. Which <laughs> she didn't know much what it was about beyond hobos, but it was there were hobos. Rhett started writing better songs and first started playing live at 15, a year after his suicide attempt. He quickly became a kind of prodigy, a kind of boy genius around Dallas, opening for bands like Lords of the New Church, just him up there with his acoustic guitar, Teenage Rhett. He put out his first solo record, Mythologies, at 19. He printed a thousand copies on cassette. He sang in a British accent because that's what his favorite British singers did. He numbered and signed each tape. They now go for hundreds of dollars on eBay. Was music a path to salvation? Music wasn't a path. It was the path. It was, for me, the the thing that saved my life um, and gave meaning to my life and fought against the darkness. And um, when I found music, not only did I find, um, you know, an outlet for my own, um, you know, inner... Um, I don't want to say demons because I feel like that's just that characterizes it in in an incorrect way. I, you know, I, my the turmoil that I felt within myself, um, it gave release to that, and gave, it, but more than release, it kind of it let me order it. It let me write it down on a piece of paper in a notebook, the, just the way I wanted, and I could put a line between each set of verses, and each set of verse would contain its own you know, agony. And, 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 and I would take it and I'd put it on the page and it would be then outside of myself and shared with the world and it would dissipate. Rhett mentioned listening to our episode with Jeff Tweedy of Wilco a few shows back. Jeff compared songwriting to meditation. Uh, music uh, is, is, a, is a really pretty close approximation of, 
of the goal of meditation, I think, if you're really in the moment listening to something musically or playing something, I didn't realize that until much later, but even just listening to music uh, puts you kind of squarely back in your body and, and in the moment, I think. I mean, I've seen you play live a bunch of times, but but I'm not the only one who thinks this, that when you play live, you really rip it up. Like, it's it's not just here are some songs I wrote. It's like, I'm going to give the people a show. And I wonder if it, if it all comes back from that moment of like, oh yeah, I need to, I need to exist in order to help people. I do believe that what I do and what Jeff Tweedy does and Amy Mann does and what all, you know, Paul Tompkins, I, I think people that, that, that spend their lives and devote their lives to creating things to share with other people. I think that what we are doing is actively um, trying to build meaning in a world that makes it really hard to find meaning. Um, again, those connections between people. Um, I know for me that when I walk up on a stage, I'm not approaching it as um, I have something really brilliant that I'm going to offer you and you better shut up and listen to it. Um, rather, I feel like I'm lucky to be here in this moment, and I'm lucky to share this moment with you, and I'm terrified that you're going to walk out of here regretting <laughs> having spent this moment with me, and I want to make it meaningful, and I want to make it, perhaps even more importantly, I want to make it joyful, and and I, I love that. I love that. Even I played last night a little gig, you know, routing on the way up here on a weeknight in New Haven, Connecticut at this dive bar called Cafe Nine. And it is a it's a dive bar the like of which, um, well, really, it's like the first gig I did when I was 15, you know, just a little room full of people. And um, maybe now they're more excited than they were when I was 15. But uh, but it's still it's just that it's that joyful moment of, um, you know, creating something, creating, a um, you know, a shared uh, experience and and the fact that it centers around these little songs that I sat in my office or in the back of the tour bus or you know wherever and 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 came up with it's um I you know I know it's cheesy that I that I I feel really honored that I get to do this job. Is there a song in particular you can think of that is your most joyful or one that you feel the most joy and connection with the audience when you play it? Every night when we close the show with Time Bomb, which is a song off of our third album, Too Far to Care, which was the, the first record that really sort of broke through to a wider audience. Um, it's our set closer for a reason, because it's maybe the most beloved song from our catalog. And, uh, and I, think it's, I think it's really funny. I think it's really sweet. Um, when it comes to the lyrics, I can't 100% say what it's about, which uh -huh. is... A hallmark of my of my own creative well, process. Here we are talking about mental health, and you're talking about a, a joyful song that nonetheless opens with talking about a time bomb in your mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we kind of have to play a little bit of that, don't we? I'll do it. I got a time bomb in my mind, Mom. I heard it ticking, but I don't know why. I'd call the police, but they don't like me. I hear them whispering when I walk by. Oh, 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 oh. 
I got a landmine in my bloodline. I'm not immune to getting blown apart. She's like a claymore, that's what she's there for. She's waiting around here to get blown apart. Oh, 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 oh. Having her on my brain's like getting hit by a train. She's gonna kill me, oh, Celeste. Oh, oh, Celeste. Oh, Celeste. Oh, Celeste. We ended up talking a lot about what happened when Rhett was 14 years old in this episode. And yes, he's done a million things since then. But it was a huge moment. It was a pivotal moment. It was the moment he started to become the artist, the singer, writer, father, husband, human that he is today. And the moment he almost didn't get to do that. Do you think that you're more in touch with this need to connect to people, to give meaning to people, to give meaning to yourself because you have glimpsed life without that? I I think all human beings, e- even the ones that you know might identify as um, the most stoic, I think we all feel the disconnect. Um, God, I had a song on my last solo record called "The Disconnect." <laughs> I'm quoting myself. Um, I think we all feel the disconnect, um, or, or, or maybe more accurately, the impossibility of connection, um, because we are all really trapped. Um, you know, I, even when I chose to embrace life, um, which, you know, which isn't like a, um, a hard and fast, uh, state, you know, I, I still, I still suffer from suicidal ideation. I still, um, I still suffer from depression. I still suffer from loneliness, even while, you know, in the, the biggest of crowds, I, um, I think we all are kind of on some level aware that we are alone and that we are born alone and that we will die alone. Um, but I think that the attempt to connect, um, whether it's successful or not is, uh, is an honorable thing and is, is a thing that saves us. I know for me, it's, it's certainly, it's, the thing that has saved me and continues to, even in, you know, the dark moments that I still, you know, um, I still find myself living in these, these, these really dark places sometimes. Now, if you listen to our credits on the show, and I hope you do, you should, because it's an entertaining and delightful part of the program, you have heard me exhort you to catch Rhett or Old 97s in person because it's a great show. And it's likely that you'll have opportunities because Rhett tours a lot. The 97s tour a lot. And Rhett records a lot of music. It's his job. And it's his passion. It's part of his wellness plan. And also, he can't help it. I'm afraid that there may be a compulsion um, to my work ethic. Um, I know one thing I've had to battle with is is impatience. Um, is always want you know. I, I I guess I just feel the finite nature of all of it. You know, like I've only got so long. I, I I've got all all these records I got to make. I got to go now now now. And I'm I'm fighting to because that I think that that 
takes you out of the moment. And I've, I really just am really trying to live in the moment and be, um, you know, be able to, you know, to not be controlled by these compulsions. You know, um, I don't have to make everyone happy all the time. I don't have to keep creating in order to prove my worth to the world or myself. You know, I don't have to straighten the couch cushions four times a day uh, or else I go to hell. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's a joke, but but it's also, you know, I mean, there, there are people who suffer from OCD in a, in a way that I would never understand. But but I um, but it's one of the cocktail of. Um, of things that I grapple with is um, needing to make things perfect. And, and that's why being a creative um, person for a living is so great because this is a world I get to control. It's my job to control this world. I have these notebooks. I fill them with songs. When they're full, I select a new notebook and I fill it with songs. And, and, um, and they conform to you know my specifications and I get to control this world. It's not couch cushions. It's playing rock and roll that's going to send you to hell, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> the Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Kate Moose is executive producer. Our recording engineer for this episode was Veronica Rodriguez. Our technical director was Cameron Wiley. Christina Lopez is our web and social media impresario. Thanks also to Nate Toby, and thanks to the Harvard Public Affairs and Communication Studio staff. Our theme song is called Pagliacci. It was written and performed by our good friend Rhett Miller, and you knew that by now. Much more about Rhett at his website, rhettmiller.com. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The 8255 spells talk. Rhett Miller talked about his younger sister and wanting to live for her and not wanting to die for her. Who is that person in your life? The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. MakeItOK.org has information to check out for yourself or for someone else. Starting a conversation like that can be awkward. Make It OK has tips on what to say, what not to say, stories of hope from people who've been there. Take the pledge to Make It OK and MakeItOK.org. We're on Twitter at THWOFD, THWOFD. You can also write to us at THWOD, FWOD, at AmericanPublicMedia.org. And we're on the World Wide Web with a website, HilariousWorld.org. Over at our Facebook page, we have all kinds of stuff going on with Rhett Miller music and interviews and all sorts of wonderful things to check out. Be sure to write us a review for Apple Podcasts and subscribe. The more buttons you push... On Apple Podcasts, the better it is for us to reach more people, which is what we want. On our next episode, NPR's Linda Holmes goes to the doctor, and the doctor sucks. And I went to see him, and he basically said, uh, he was kind of doing intake, and he said, uh, are you dating? And I said, no. And he said, have you ever dated very much? And I said, no. And he said, why do you think that is? And I went through a few different explanations, but it was clear that he had, you know, an answer that he was waiting for. And I said, you know, it doesn't help that I've been fat my whole life, I'm sure. And he was kind of like, there it is. And what he basically said to me was, I don't think you have anxiety. I just, but I would be happy to put you on a diet. I'm John Moe. Bye now.